to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway of the New York Academy of Sciences online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, April 4th, 2008. I'm Adrienne Burke. Patrick Hoff is vice chair of the Department of Neuroscience at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. He gave the 78th James Arthur Lecture on the Evolution of the Human Brain at the American Museum of Natural History in New York recently. His lecture was titled, Humans, Apes, and Whales, Neuronal Specializations and the Origin of Brain Degenerative Disorders. In it, he explains the morphomolecular features that render certain neuronal populations of the brain selectively vulnerable to degenerative processes in humans. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a a very big honor for me to be here tonight. And uh, it's also a very special pleasure as my my boss uh, gave this lecture about 12 years ago, and I was in this audience at the time and thinking it was pretty cool to, to, to be doing this. And uh, then uh, in the, in the subse- subsequent years, many of my uh, close collaborators have uh, given that lecture. And uh, last year, Michael Posner did, and we just published a paper together. So um, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to be in the, in the continuation of the, of the many scholars who have, who have been who have had the opportunity to uh, to talk here. So uh, tonight I'm going to try to give you sort of a, a career tour of what I've been doing over the past uh, 20 years in the domain of Alzheimer's disease, uh, schizophrenia, other degenerative disorders of the brain, and uh, our ventures in comparative brain anatomy in mammals. So if you are interested in, uh, in the mammalian brain, the very first thing is that you have to find them. So... So yeah, so so that 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 thing this is this is real. It actually exists somewhere in Oklahoma, I think, and and um, that that would be the easy way to do it. Um, it it's in fact a lot more complicated to to to, to get these uh, these specimens when you you go beyond the the common uh, laboratory animal like the mouse, the rat, and the, and the macaque monkey. Uh, here you just have a, a series of. Uh, of various primates with the, the macaque, the orangutan, the, the gorilla, the chimpanzee, and the, and the human. And you can see just looking at their gross morphology that they, 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 they are some differences in the patterns of uh, sulci and gyri uh, on the brain independent of their, of their shape or, or of their size. Uh, and these, these differences in pattern we know can be uh, reflected by the distribution of neurons uh, in the cerebral cortex, and that is the type of things we will be interested in. So one of our, of our big quests uh, has been the search for neurochemical markers of cortical organization. So when you just look at cortical organization the way it has been classically done by Broadman and von Economo in times past, what you see, it's a nissel stain, so it's blue stuff, and it looks like a forest that may or may not tell you much about the boundaries between different cortical domains that may subserve different functions. So you'd like to, to be a little bit more, uh, more subtle about what you can do. And that specificity is to be looked at the regional level, the laminar level, and the cellular level, because the cortex is constructed in, a, in, in, in several layers that all get some different types of connectivity um, and maybe in turn uh, affected differentially in the course of a number of brain disorders. So we would like to know what is the makeup of the neuronal population that form this, this basic organization of the cerebral cortex. 
And that is clearly apparent here. If you look at the organization of the primary uh, visual cortex here, uh, you can see that the lamination patterns are completely different. Um, similarly, um, depending on wh which layer you find yourself in, you will see different cell types. And among different cortical regions, uh, you find specific cellular population that can be found exclusively in certain, uh, certain regions. So, for example, in the, the primary motor cortex, you have these giant layer 5 uh, uh, cells in, in, uh, in primate. They are called the bed cells from the guy who described them, them first. And these are the cells that form the corticomotor neuronal pathway from the brain to the spinal cord and control, among other things, the fine movement of the hand. So this is a very primate-like type of activity, right? Um, in area 17, you also have very large cells that appear in the deep layers, uh, and they are known as the minor cells. And these cells are also involved in some form of motor function, but visual motor function. And uh, they, uh, they are responsible for the, the fast eye-tracking movement when you make a saccade with your eye toward the periphery of your visual field to detect something that is coming toward you. So these are regional markers and uh, uh, um, laminar markers, and these cells have a particular, uh, we can assume that they have a particular uh, uh, morpho-molecular uh, phenotype as well. So we studied them in a variety of primates. So here each, each little dot is a different uh, uh, primate species. It's work I've done with my uh, colleague uh, uh, Chet uh, Sherwood. And uh, we looked at simple uh, allometric relationship between uh, the volume of these neurons, because they are big cells, we wanted to see whether there, there, there was a relationship between the size of the animal and the size of this neuron, assuming that the larger animal would have larger neurons, right? Um, and uh, the size of the brain as well. And we saw some general relationships, so the, the human is around there. But what was quite um, interesting is um, when we looked at the, the minor cells in the visual cortex, so there was some outlier here. This is the, the same species, so let's keep this in mind. So something special happened in one species, which is not particularly large or doesn't have a particularly large brain. And um, we looked at the ratio between the volume of bed cells and minor cells to the volume of the other resident pyramidal neurons around them. And we found that the patas monkey, which is that guy here, was completely deviant. Next to him was the Amadrias baboon. And um, this is quite interesting because the patas monkey is an extremely light-bodied animal, extremely fast. It's built to outrun cheetahs. It lives in an open savanna, and it has to uh, detect quick movement, things that uh, necessitate a, a flight response extremely quickly. So it has that fabulous neuron extremely developed to precisely uh, do that job to, to shift attention and gaze in the direction of a potentially noxious stimulus. And they can actually outrun cheetahs. So this was, a, this was, a, this was something, something very interesting to see the convergence of particularly large minor cells, particularly large bed cells in that species that is that has that functional specialization. So you can start to think based on, on cortical markers to make these, these correlations with some, some ecologically relevant function. 
then you can use chemical markers to identify cell types. So there you sort of go for uh, go for luck and try to find something that labels not all of the neurons, but specifically some subpopulation of neurons to, 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 to attempt to characterize them then based on their morphology and their distribution. So here again, we are in the primary visual cortex uh, of a macaque monkey, and you see it's labeled with an antibody uh, to neurofilament protein, which is a cytoskeletal protein, so something that sort of keeps the shape of the, of the neuron what it is, a sort of a scaffolding protein, if you wish. You can see the minor cells very heavily labeled with that, uh, with that, uh, uh, that, that, an, that antibody. And uh, we compare it with other species. So here you have a wolf, here you have a fur seal, a camel, um, a dwarf sperm whale, and uh, this one is uh, a beluga. And what you can see is that you have these very large neurons, beautiful dendrites crossing several layers, um, distributed in layer three and in layer five. So, so in a position to be really sort of projection neurons. And that pattern is fairly conserved across species with a predomination of layer five in, in the cetaceans down there. So some general theme, large cells, one chemical marker that is quite relevant, does not la label all of the neurons, and a laminar pa pattern in a given cortical area. Interestingly, this works also with the mouse. So uh, you, can, you can really use these, uh, these markers to differentiate the distribution in different cortical areas. Here you have a succession of fields related to the primary visual cortex of the mouse, you would have the primary visual cortex, and you have all these little subfields, and you can see that there is a gradient in the density of these labeled neurons as you go outward toward the midline of the brain, so in these different cortical fields. All of these are different regions that probably have a different function. We just don't know exactly what they do in the mouse, but they seem to be mimicking what we call the dorsal visual pathway in the monkeys, in the pathways of visual connection that subserve motion detection. So it could be very important. And in fact, if you do track tracing, if you inject a dye in the brain of the mouse and you look at the spread of the, of the, of the axonal projections, you can see that you have areas here in the medial cortex and in the lateral cortex that correspond to the sort of hierarchy that we have observed with our cortical marker. So this is, this is a general concept that is quite important because with a given marker, then you can develop also a hodological scheme and trace uh, not, not only domains of cortex but also connectivity, and we, we will come back to that here in a more complicated experiment involving a macaque monkey. What we did, we, we placed multiple, uh, multiple injections. And I must say that on, on, on that slide, I, I summarize about seven years of work. Um, so we, 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 placed, we placed injections in all of these regions where you see arrows terminating. And I've simplified the data set. We really did something extensive. And these injections are, are, are of a, of a retrogradely transported dye, which will be picked up by the axon and transported over vast distance to the cell of origin that formed that projection. So if you inject here, then you can trace a neuron in the temporal cortex that makes a projection to the site of injection here in the prefrontal cortex. So that would be that projection. That's how 
the cell loaded with the, the transport, uh, transported dye looks like, and then you can perform, after sacrificing the animal, immunohistochemistry for your neurofilament protein marker. Then, across projections, you can start to calculate how many of the neurons that form a given pro projections do contain that particular cellular marker, and start to draw conclusions as to what it means for the projection. So it's quite interesting. You have projections that link the prefrontal cortex, the superior uh, temporal cortex, and the inferior parietal cortex. So these are very high-order, cognitive-level type of, of, of communication in, in, in the brain. And these connections are very heavily dominated by that particular neurochemical phenotype. It's enriched in neurofilament protein. Something interesting to, to remember for further down in the talk. Whereas local projections are not at all characterized by the presence of that, of that uh, particular marker. In the visual system, motion-related pathways, like V1 to that area uh, called the mediotemporal area, are 100% labeled. Whereas those controlling color and form analysis are not. Or, to, or are, but to a lesser degree. So some functional difference. Now, what does it do to a neuron to have a lot of neurofilament protein? Again, it's scaffolding, but it also enhances speed of transmission. And a projection like V1 to MT is a very fast bypass projection that brings some information from V1 directly to a center that is designed to analyze motion and where motion occurs in the visual field, okay? And the cell type that forms that projection is the minor cell. This is the patas monkey cell. We can use also this, uh, this, these patterns of distribution of uh, neurofilament protein within smaller domain of the visual cortex and to see how these domains have evolved across a number of species. And what we found is that quite interestingly, as uh, we, we, we look at species that are more recently evolved um, among macaques, like Macaca mulata and Macaca fascicularis, they seem to have a, a less complicated um, uh, inferior temporal visual cortex, whereas species like the Moore macaque, Macaca maora, or uh, the bonnet macaque, um, and cercopithecines like uh, the, the baboon and uh, the, 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 the mandrill, the, the patas monkey, and so on, have a much more complicated uh, cortical domain in, the, in that part of the, if the, uh, of, the, of the temporal cortex to the point that we could define an entire additional region along a supplementary little sulcus on the surface. And in baboons and patas monkey, that surface, that, that sulcus, again, it's very deep, whereas in macaque monkeys, it is very shallow. So there is an interesting evolutionary trend, which, uh, again, may have some important ecological uh, cor correlates and something that was progressively lost uh, in the phylogeny of, uh, of uh, cercopithecoids. Uh, interestingly, that, that's, I, I show this because here I have to show at least one piece of bone. Okay? And, and uh, that, that, is, that, is, that is a popular one because it was described by many people um, who have been working with the, with the museum or are working with the, the museum, and that's a, a skull from uh, Homo erectus from, uh, from, uh, um, from Indonesia. 
And it is a particularly interesting specimen because when you look at the endocast of that specimen, it was possible to reveal that on the left side there was an enlargement of the homologue region that correspond in, in modern humans to the Broca language area. So that's something that probably was already present in, uh, in uh, um, Homo erectus or on, on its way to evolve as something really prominent, uh, similar to what we observe uh, in, uh, in ourselves. And there is indeed a, 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 morph, a morpho-molecular uh, correlate in that, in that that region has a particular signature. You can see this. This is different from what we have here in adjacent field, either the premotor cortex or the prefrontal cortex. So we can we can also use that to to trace. Um, uh, such phylogenetic pattern among species that are either uh, uh, very close to us, like chimpanzees, gorillas, and so on, and, and may correlate to the to the fossil record for particular uh, functions that are thought to be uniquely uh, human. The other interesting thing we saw with again with Chetcher Wood is that these uh, neurofilament protein enriched neurons. Um, are far more abundant in the part of the motor cortex in hominids that contains the face representation. And so that's obviously uh, valid in terms of the, the extensive mimic movement that uh, hominids can make in comparison to other species. And so here you have typical example in the chimpanzee brain of how it looks like, and the difference with uh, other anthropoids is, is quite remarkable. So... Something to think about what's happening in human brain and what's happening in the human brain when it doesn't work, there must be something something unique about the human brain. And we, we, we have to look for the, that uniqueness uh, because a lot of the neurodegenerative disorders, in fact, probably most of them are not seen in our closest relatives. Chimpanzees don't get Alzheimer's disease. They age, but they don't get Alzheimer's disease. Um, so we, we looked at, at possible markers of uh, evolutionary markers of uniqueness in the, in the human brain. And one would be to look um, at the, the, the ratio between glial cells, which are considered sort of the support cells of the brain, and neurons in the frontal cortex of anthropoid primates. And if you look just at the, 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 the relationship between the, the, neuron, uh, the glial neuron ratio and the, 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 the brain weight, you do not see uh, uh, much departure from the expected uh, value uh, in, in, in humans. All this falls nicely. However, if you look just at the sheer numbers of, of, of glia and neuron, you can see that in, these, in all of these frontal cortex regions, the human is significantly above, and it has a lot more uh, glial cells than, than other, which may speak to uh, a, a more... Uh, important demand uh, of, of, uh, of these support cells for uh, an exp energetically expensive type of cortex. And in fact, we have now evidence that some uh, electron transfer chain uh, protein like, uh, like uh, the cytochrome oxidase uh, C5A uh, um, is, um, is expressed in higher quantity in the human uh, frontal cortex compared to uh, the other uh, the other great apes and that the gene um, contains in fact an, uh, an accelerated rate of evolution among hominids 
So as I said, Alzheimer's dementia is, is a uniquely human disease. It's a, it's a syndrome that features deterioration of previously acquired intellectual abilities. It is very severe and enough to interfere with social and occupational functioning. Um, impairment of memory, abstract thinking, judgment is evident. Um, so you have here uh, uh, an 82-year-old who is perfectly normal or was perfectly normal, and uh, here what happens in an advanced case of Alzheimer's disease. So you can see that extraordinary shrinking of the cerebral cortex, and if you look inside the brain, neuropathologically, you see that the neurons appear uh, full of these uh, flame-shaped type of lesion, which are bundle of abnormal proteins called neurofibrary tangles, and these deposits of amyloid protein. And these are the key markers of Alzheimer's disease. Now, what is the difference between normal aging and Alzheimer's disease? Well, Alzheimer's disease, you lose neurons. Normal aging, you don't. And that's the good news because you may be able to preserve them. So there is a minimal neuronal loss in the course of normal aging in humans and in non-human uh, primates, but the problem remains that as people get older, there is a significant degree of cognitive impairment that occurs, but in absence of neuronal loss. So you may think that something happens to these neurons, probably not all of them, so again, that problem of specificity. Um, and that these alterations are likely to be rather subtle, so we're going to have to look for them. So we, we've been using very advanced uh, uh, quantitative methods uh, to, uh, to develop a, a, an accurate reflection of the dynamic uh, of changes in vulnerable uh, sets of neurons uh, to develop a, a pathologic profile that can be correlated to the clinical status uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the patients. So we're looking for a spatial and temporal linkage, so the distribution of lesions and the rate of aggregation of lesions uh, of these tangles and amyloid deposits, as well as um, other uh, type of pathology in, the, in these pyramidal cells that are characterized by their neurochemical profile. So we are not looking at every cell. We're looking at cells that we can recognize, and we are targeting, of course, our cells that we know are involved in forming these long corticocortical projections, these association pathways, because we, 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 we had hypothesized that if you lose them, when you disconnect your cortex, you become demented. We look at that in human brains, in various mouse models, um, and uh, we, we're trying to, to, to use this study to, uh, to, uh, to extend them uh, with a very high degree of, 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 of rigor and precision to also to other diseases that affect uh, humans like schizophrenia and autism. So the way you start, I mean, the human brain is big, right? So it's, so it's, it's, it's not easy to address these questions, and it's very labor-intensive. Uh, you need a lot of microscopy, uh, a lot of storage space, because you're going to cut that brain in little tiny microscopy sections, and everything has to be sort of planned ahead of time, because once you've cut it, your specimen in, is gone, so you cannot really go back. Um, so we, we, we have developed a, a brain banking system at Sinai with my, my colleague Dan Pearl, which allows us to do these quantitative stereologic uh, uh, studies in, 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 a, in, a, in a quite user-friendly manner. 
and uh, that's how it would look like on, 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 the, on the computerized microscope. Here you have a particular layer. It's layer two of the entorhinal cortex, which is the first part of the brain that suffers from age-related changes. So that's past age 50, you have tangles in there, no matter what you do. You know, in a couple of years, I will have tangles there. Um, not looking forward to it, but that's, that doesn't mean you're going to get demented. Okay? It's, it's just normal aging. And then we, 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 we calculate the relative proportions of cells that are normal, those that contain, that are on their way to form a tangle, like this one. You can see the tangle labeled by a specific antibody in a, in, in a cell that still shows a nucleus here. So it's still sort of a viable cell. And that's an important cell because it may be rescued if we were to find a, a way to, to slow, down, slow down the process. And then you have that type of things, which is known as a ghost tangle. It's a, just the remnant of a cell. There was a cell. It's no more. You just have a tangle that, 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 that remains after the cell completely died. So altogether, adding these, these type of, uh, of, uh, of lesions to, to, to the remaining normal cells gives you an idea of the total normal cell that was there before there was any pathology. And you can look at that dynamically as a function of the, of the severity of the cases. And we can complicate the, the, the scheme by looking at our favorite neurofilament protein here. So that's a double labeling. Here is the neurofilament. Here is the abnormal uh, protein, protein tau, um, which uh, is uh, co-localized in some of these neurons. Here you can see that cell is beginning to, to accumulate a tangle. Uh, this cell is pretty much on its way. Um, and uh, if you look in the entorhinal cortex, all of these cells are labeled with, uh, with the antibody to neurofilan protein, but all of them also contain a tangle. So that's, that's not so good. And the relevance of, of that particular layer is that these are the cells that receive global information from the entire neocortex and funnel that information into the hippocampus, which is one of your fundamental memory center. Right? So if that doesn't work, you are in trouble. You will not learn new tricks. Okay? So we're, we're placing this in the context of connectivity, and we're trying to relate the distribution of tangles with the distribution of amyloid, and we found that where you have the termination of an axonal pathway, usually you find plaques, in the layer where the axons of neurons that are affected by tangle formation would project along different sets of, 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 of connections. So that, that sort of makes sense. You have a, a, a correspondence between cells that are affected and deposition of pathology at, at, at other sites in a network, in, in pathways that are degenerating. And that also means that not all of the neurons are necessarily degenerating, but only certain specific classes of cells are degenerating. So we've, we've, we've really looked quantitatively at that, at that phenomenon, um, counting cells that contain the neurofilament protein so that we're perfectly normal, those forming a tangle, those who are completely dead, um, and other neurons that are not particularly enriched in neurofilament protein that are likely to be involved in other type of circuits, which may or may not form um, a, a tangle. So it was a, a triple labeling experiment. 
Um, we calculated also their volume, so each individual cell was categorized as its own volume. We wanted to see whether there was a shrinkage associated with the, the, the formation of that tangle pathology. And uh, here you have the, when you mix all the channels, you have how it actually looks like, it's kind of a Jackson Pollock, but um, you quant quantify that separately and, 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 and then you get, you get your quantitative data. So that's another saga that took something like six years to do. I, I have very resilient students in the lab, I must say. It says it. And um, what we observed is that among these particularly prominent neurons, those that were the most affected were the largest ones. And the largest ones are also the ones that form the longest projection in the cortex. So it, it fits very well with that hypothesis that long corticocortical projections are specifically affected in Alzheimer's disease. We also found that these cells shrink, actually. That there is a loss of their, of, their, of their volume as they form a tangle. So being able to target the early tangle formation would probably be a phenomenal therapeutic target for the future. And we also demonstrated that these cells particularly enrich neurofilament protein. You can see here that it's really a subpopulation of cells that you account for between 10 to 30 percent, depending on the cortical areas of the total number of, of, of pyramidal neurons in, the, in, the, in, in, in that cortical domain. So it's not much, but if you lose them, you lose a lot. And we, we, we've seen that depending on the, on the clinical dementia, um, score of the patient, so zero is perfectly normal, five, five is, uh, is terminal, these cells here in the, in the red dot die faster. So even in a minimally affected case, you already have a 20% loss of these neurons. So that's really not good, and these should be cells targeted for, uh, for therapeutic uh, strategies in the future. You probably have heard from the lay press a lot about the amyloid load, and it's not good to have too much amyloid in the brain. Uh, it's too much, not good to have too much amyloid anywhere in your body, actually. Um, and people have, have, have made a lot of fuss about it that, that the more you have, uh, you know, it all depends in the end how it's quantified. And uh, you can have a, a, a person that is fairly normal cognitively, and if you look at different parts of, of his or her cortex, you can find a lot of amyloid or a little bit of amyloid. And, and there is no real um, rule as to how these, 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 these amyloid deposits are, are, are distributed and how, how severe the amyloid load is. So depending where you sample neuropathologically, either here or here at higher magnification, you can find a very different reading. So is it to say that there is no correlation and amyloid is not important? No. Uh, the, the, these aggregate plaques, as we call them, these senile plaques, are probably not the most uh, dramatic form of amyloid, but what we cannot see in these stains is the oligomeric or monomeric form of amyloid that are just floating around and that are extremely toxic. And this is another uh, target for the development of uh, a pharmaceutical approach to the, to, the, to the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. But of course, Alzheimer's disease is a lot more complicated than that. There are many genetic factors, many epigenetic factors um, that are at play, and that's where working from mouse models that are genetically manipulable is very important. We can image these mice at a very high resolution in a, in a, in a MR machine, and we can actually visualize amyloid deposits here and start to interrogate ourselves 
as to whether a plaque that would occur, occur here, in a, again, it's a transgenic animal, it's a genetically modified animal that express amyloid, if, if that plaque would do something to neurons that are distant here, or if the plaque has to occur really in, in, in the intimate uh, relationship with some dendrites of these, of these neurons. And in fact, you can see here we have reconstructed in three dimensions a dendrite that courses through a plaque. You can see all these little buttons on the dendrites. These are the dendritic spines. That's where you have the synaptic contacts. That's where the information passes from cell to cell in the brain. And you can see that as it courses through the plaques, you lose the spines. So you're disconnecting here. So that is not so good. Uh, so we, we, we are studying different models in, in, uh, in, in, the, in the mouse, in the lab, to see how different uh, um, mutation of key proteins like the amyloid precursor protein, among others, may influence uh, the, the function of the neurons. But what about normal aging? So uh, we, we, we started a, an, an intense study of, of, uh, of, the, of the, the, the study of aging in, uh, in, in, in various hominids. And um, so perfectly normal human cases, of course, um, and um, age, uh, age great apes. And great apes now are, are, are found in a sort of an uh, unlikely situation because they are, they are very well kept in zoos and in sectoraries, and we discover that they have an enormous potential for aging. So we can find individuals who are 60 years old. Uh, so that's a very old chimpanzee or gorilla. This uh, old lady here was actually past uh, 60 years old and was an interesting case because she was demented probably because she had a major vascular disorder, but she could not figure out her way uh, to the pen uh, at night and had to be helped. So it's, um, it's, it can happen, you know, but that was a vascular case. It's really not Alzheimer's disease. But if you look at these brains, these are elderly uh, examples of, um, of, uh, of great apes, you see no cortical atrophy. And in fact, if you look at the entorhinal cortex, layer two, in, uh, in old great apes, you don't see tangle formation. So again, tangle formation is something that is strictly human. It does not occur even in our, with the, 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 the genetic proximity of, uh, of the great apes. So something happens to the human. They, we may have other cell types that make, uh, make us so prone to, uh, to, to, to show these degenerative patterns. And if you look across an age spectrum of chimpanzees here, you can see that with aging, this is an old, an old animal, there is no change in the total number of cells. So what is happening uh, in the brain during aging? There is no quantifiable cell loss. This now is in the macaque monkey, young macaques, total number of cells uh, in the entorhinal cortex, old macaques, very old macaques, 28, 30 year, years of age is a very old macaque monkey. You know, some inter-individual variation, but no cell loss. However, when you look at the zone of projections of these cells located in, in layer two of the entorhinal cortex into the hippocampus, exactly where their axon terminate, you see a change in the expression of a glutamatergic receptor. And so that's an excitatory receptor. That's what mediates the transmission of excitatory inputs. And exactly where the axons of these neurons terminate, in the outer molecular layer of the dentate gyrus, you have a decreased expression of that glutamate receptor subunit. Ah, so that means that there is a dendritic pathology, probably a spine pathology. 
So we looked at synaptic markers. And you can see that this is Alzheimer's disease. This is control. A synaptic marker, synaptophysin, um, is markedly decreased in its expression. Right? We quantified the distribution of a spine marker, spinophilin. So here the numbers here are, are in billions. So this is really the number of little dendritic contact that you have in, the, in these areas in the cortex, that's in the hippocampus, that's in the prefrontal cortex, so uh, regions that are fundamentally important to, to cognition and, and, and memory. And you can see that as the, the disease becomes more severe, there is a nice drop in the number of spines um, uh, in, these, uh, in the Alzheimer's disease patient, but not so much in, in, uh, in something that is still considered normal aging. Similarly, we quantified here different types of glutamate receptor proteins, and we can find a steady decrease in the expression of these receptors. So really, in aging, it, it, and, and in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, it points to a synaptic site of pathology uh, at first that eventually, if the, the patient may progress to Alzheimer's disease, be reflected in a, in a, in a major neuronal degeneration. So we went back to the monkey model to study in old, old animals our favorite corticocortical neurons to see how they would behave in aging. And um, so we, we placed an injection site and looked at neurons at various uh, positions in the cortex. And then we took a slab of the cortex, injected the neurons that were retrogradely labeled by the, by the tracer with uh, a fluorescent dye that reveals the entire dendritic tree. And then we, we developed computer programs to reconstruct these, these neurons in three dimension and uh, started to quantify uh, the spines. And these are young animals and these are old animals and you can see that there is a dramatic loss of spines. Interestingly, at the same time, the dendritic tree becomes impoverished. So it's not that the neuron dies, but the cell becomes... Um, shrinks, essentially. It, 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 you, 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 you lose dendritic branches and uh, at the same time that you lose, you, lose, uh, you lose spines. And this may offer some correlate to the, to the cognitive deficits that can be, in fact, observed in, uh, in elderly macaque if you, if you, if you test, test them behaviorally. So just to, to show you the, some of these data, here you have a, a decrease in the complexity of the, of the apical den, dendritic tree with, with fewer branches. And this is specific to the apical tree. The basal branches, which re receive different type of connection in the cortex, are not so much affected or not at all affected. So fewer branches and fewer spines, pretty uh, dramatic change in the number of spines. So you, you lose the complexity of the neuron and you lose the capacity to make, to make connections with other parts of the cortex. We wanted to know more. So in collaboration with uh, uh, colleagues at Boston University, who also study a population of elderly macaques, um, we looked into the physiology of these, uh, of these cells. And what we do before uh, we, we, we can take a slab of, of, of cortex that is kept alive and we can uh, uh, record from the neurons the, 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 the biophysical properties of the neuron, the, the electrical, electrotonic properties of the neuron. And after that, we can load the neuron with a dye and do exactly the same type of reconstruction. 
And we find that the biophysical properties of age neurons are dramatically changed. If you take a young cell and you put, you input in, a, in, that, in that neuron a, a, a cur a different current, stepping currents like this, it will make the cell depolarize and, and, and fire. So these are action potentials. And as you increase uh, the, 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 frequ the, the frequency, it will fire faster. But and the intensity of the current, it will fire more. In the age cells, you can see that at, at rest, you have an increased firing already. You have spikes that come out that are enough to depolarize a neuron. But at the same current steps, you have a much faster rate than in a young neuron. And this is plotted here. You have the action potential frequency and the current steps. And you can see that the age uh, in yellow here are significantly uh, elevated um, compared to the to the uh, to the young uh, the, the young uh, macaques, so you have an alteration of the of the, uh, the 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 electrical properties of these cells as well, which we, which reflects the fact that their their morphology is changing. We found also, of course, in these cells that their density was uh, the spine density was was uh, was decreased, and that the total surface area of the dendrites was also decreased, confirming our uh, Previous, um, previous finding and that the input resistance and the different, different, uh, different uh, physiological parameters were nicely correlated to the, to the apparent size of the dendritic tree in these cells. So we, we imputed some, 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 uh, some computational model in that. And because we have the true three-dimensional uh, morphology of these neurons, we can then plug in the biophysical data that we have obtained and um, have uh, develop a, a morpho-electrotonic model of that, which permits us to, to assess how an abnormal anatomy, that is, a, uh, that is the, if you want, the young cell anatomy, so you have a, a nicely looking neurons, and the shrunken anatomy in, in an old macaque monkey would influence the biophysical properties of these neurons. And if you look here, this is, this is a morpho-electrotonic model uh, that reflects the, the, actually the, the, the spread of current from the cell body to the distal tip of the, of the dendrite, so the back propagation of an action potential in the dendritic tree in a young cell. And if you morph this correcting for this change in, in, in morphology, you see that electrically that cell is further shrunken. So it really doesn't work well. It, it's not dead. It's there. It's, 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 it's functioning, but only to some extent. And we suspect that this is what causes these changes in, um, in, uh, in behavior. So now we, we, have, we have layer three neurons that we know are associated with, with long pathways in the brain that are essential for cognition, that are more specifically uh, affected in Alzheimer's disease, that are clearly suffering during uh, the normal process of brain aging. And we would like to know whether something is happening uh, that would be so unique to the human. Still, what is, what is conferring uh, vulnerability in the, in, the, in the human? So in other words, is there specificity in the human brain? So because no, pyramidal cell is a pyramidal cell is a pyramidal cell, right? You know, it's very difficult to differentiate classes of pyramidal cells just based on, on their morphology. So then we, we stumbled on this. And you can see here these very strange filamentous things. They are neurons. 
Uh, and these neurons, we, we call them first spindle cells because they look like spindles. Um, and at first we thought it was an artifact of preparation because we had never seen something like that. Then we thought enthusiastically that we have discovered a new cell type in the human brain. That was cool. Uh, that lasted about two weeks. And um, then we discovered that Betts had described then in 1881 that Cahal, of course, had said, yeah, yes, I see them too. Um, and then Constantin von Economo really described the distribution in the brain in great details in 1926. And in the human brain, you find these cells in two regions. One is the anterior cingulate cortex, and that's a very important um, Uh, region for a lot of uh, motor visceral control as well as uh, to drive your attention. So when you attend to us, if you pay attention to me right now, you are engaging your anterior cingulate cortex, right? And the other region is the frontoinsular cortex. The frontoinsular cortex is a strange region which is probably a limbic sensory cortex, so it regulates um, how your uh, various uh, viscera are feeling. Okay, so these are two regions that are probably engage a lot in the sense of homeostasis at some point. But on top of that, also at a lot of cognitive control, emotion, judgment, self-awareness, social behavior, social consciousness, and things like that. So we, we saw them in the, in the human. We knew they did not exist in the monkey because that's the next step where we looked. So then we looked at our collection of great apes and we found them in the bonobo. We found them here in the, in the chimpanzee, in the gorilla, in the orangutan, not in the lesser apes. So it was very ex exciting because we thought, okay, that we have a hominid-specific neuron. Right? And we knew they did not exist in pigs, in dogs, in things like that, uh, because we looked. And very interestingly, they are uh, also prominently labeled uh, by our antibody to neurofilament protein. We did some uh, experiments in postmortem human brain by putting some little uh, dye crystals um, next to the cingulate cortex to try to trace Uh, a bit of axon, and we know that they send an axon outside of the cortex. We, of course, we have no idea in these species where they may project because we cannot do anything invasive in these species. But they are probably in a position to make long subcortical projections. And we looked in Alzheimer's disease. And these are terminal cases, very severe cases of Alzheimer's disease, and they are affected. If you look at earlier stage of Alzheimer's disease, they are, in fact, fairly preserved. So it's really at the, the far end of Alzheimer's disease that these cells are affected. Interestingly, if you look among great apes, including human, these cells show a perfect correlation with the, the degree of encephalization of the species. So, again, that stirred a lot of hypotheses about social behavior and communication and uh, self-awareness self and all that. And quite interestingly, and that's something that emerged recently from John, uh, John Oldman's lab and uh, William Seeley's lab, uh, is the discovery that these neurons are specifically sensitive to one form of dementia called frontotemporal dementia. So that's not Alzheimer's disease. It's an earlier type of dementia that affects people in their 40s to 60s. It is concentrating on the frontal lobe and the temporal pole and is not at all characterized by a, tr a trouble of cognition or spatial orientation, but by a disaggregation of social conduct, judgment, awareness, and so on. So 
it matches perfectly the cingulate cortex and the frontoinsular cortex and the distribution of these neurons, which interestingly here you can see form tangles in that disorder. You can see the accumulation of pathological uh, protein in the cell body and the dendrite of these uh, uh, spindle cells or phonekonomo neuron as we have uh, renamed them in honor of uh, Constantin Phonekonomo. Interestingly, these cells are also messed up quite consistently in disorders where social conduct and affect are, uh, are, are involved, such as autism. This here is the region where you would normally find them. That's the frontoinsular cortex. In autistic cases, they tend to spread in the orbitofrontal plane where normally you do not find them in, in adults. So it's as if there was an abnormality in the development of these regions and that during the early aging and puberty, these cells were not removed from places where they should not occur. Um, in schizophrenia, we are looking at that too, and we see that they have abnormal clustering. They also go into abnormal layers, and uh, that, that feeds into the, the neurodevelopmental uh, hypothesis of these, uh, of these disorders. Quite interestingly, we stumbled on a couple of cases of uh, partial agenesis of the corpus callosum. So these are people who have no left-right communication uh, from birth. And as you can see here, this is the normal situation. You have the cingulate gyrus here, the corpus callosum here. In these people, you have nothing here. It's just a con con continued swath of cortex with no corpus callosum in the middle. This is the normal case, frontoinsular cortex. Each little dot is a phonekonomo neuron. In these cases, they don't occur here, but they occur in the orbitofrontal cortex. So they have a completely different uh, distribution, and which is quite interesting. You can see a brain here of one of these patients. That's the remnant of the corpus callosum. It's a partial case. But in agenesis of the corpus callosum, um, there is a disruption of social emo and emotional behaviors, inability to express one's emotional state, difficult difficulty to to have a theory of mind and things like this. So again, it fits this, uh, this, uh, this scheme and distribution of these particular cells very well. And um, so the question remains, are there really specific to, um, to, to aminids? So we looked, uh, we could do that because we have the brains. We looked at the, the next question, why don't great whales get Alzheimer's disease? So here you have various brains. These are very big brains. And that's, that's even further complicated than, than Alzheimer's disease because from a human brain that is about like this, you go to a brain that is about like this. Um, and uh, we, we, we've been studying different species. Here you have uh, an MRI scan through the brain of a, of a killer whale. That's uh, a brain of a... Of a um, of a minky whale that we, we, we got last year from, uh, it was lost in uh, New York Harbor. And um, in our collection, we, we have a, a beautiful series of parasagital, parasagital preparations through a humpback whale. So we decided to, to, to look at the structure of the cortex of the humpback whale. Well, it had never been done before. So we looked. And, of course, the structure of the cortex is radically different from what you have in a primate. That, again, is uh, our uh, standard hominid primary visual cortex with a very large layer 4 where you have all these retinal inputs uh, converging. This is the primary visual cortex in a cetacean. So you see the difference. This is layer 1. Here is layer 1. So a third of the cortex is layer 1. 
He is layer four. You have no layer four in the Cetacean. So again, a cortex that is wired in completely different rules than the primate brain. So anything we know about the primate brains does not apply there. Ah. The way that that cortex looks is sort of monotonous through the through the, the entire brain in the whales. And if you just look, take a casual look, it will look pretty much the same everywhere. Uh, and in fact, it had fosters a, a, a lot of a, a lot of uh, ink about the fact that these are relatively stupid animals because their cortex is not that differentiated, but that's not the case. In fact, their cortex is quite differentiated and you can recognize a lot of cortical domains. And among species, you have wide differences in, in, in packing density and cortical organization. You have these columnar uh, arrangements of cells in the deep layers that are never seen in other species. Uh, this is the primary visual cortex. The same thing is found in the primary auditory cortex. So you can really see the incoming of specific inputs that are segregated in, in columns, um, and that probably has functional, uh, fun functional meaning. Uh, and that's a theme that you find across uh, species. You also have things that are fairly abnormal, never seen in primates, this clustering of layer two cells that are frequently aligned with clusters of layer 5 cells. So it's as if you had these large megacolumn of, uh, of cortex that probably all converge to, a, to a, a particular point. And that would be interesting in the context of whales because they are not particularly um, uh, inter-hemispheric. Okay? They, they can function with one hemisphere at a time and it's the, the, mo the bulk of the connection really goes within an hemisphere. They have a very thin corpus callosum uh, uh, relatively. So it may be that, that this condition a very particular uh, type of connectivity and optimizes the wiring in these gigantic and very convoluted brains. Then, of course, we found this for an neurons in the humpback whale. Uh, and we found them in exactly the same spot as we had found them in hominids. So that's a beautiful case of convergent evolution, except that the whales were first. Because they, they, invented, they invented the phonekonomoneuron uh, 30 million years ago, whereas the, the old primates did that 15 million years ago. So that's, that's pretty good. So... You know, of course, it's very interesting. It still works, right, in terms of being a social species and, 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 and all that. Whales are very social. They are really highly intelligent. And, uh, and um, we were first quite disappointed not to find them in small whales that are highly encephalized. I could not find them in, in, in the bottlenose dolphin, but we found them in the fin whale, in the sperm whale, in the killer whale, and here you have the comparison with the human. They are very widespread. They form these nice little columns uh, in, in layer five together. They cluster. All, all, all this is there exactly as we would find in, uh, in, the, in the great apes. And um, this, yeah, it's going to do it one by one. All right. And, and these are the regions where we find them. So the anterior cingulate cortex, the insular cortex, that's going to be the frontal insular cortex. Yeah, there it is. And we have an additional field in the whales, which is the frontopolar cortex. So the significance of that and what it does for the whale, we don't know. Uh, this is not the motor cortex. It's really outside of the big magnocellular motor field. Uh, we are investigating that generally. And just recently, thanks to my uh, graduate student, 
uh, we discovered them finally in the bottlenose dolphin because she has better eyes than I do, so she could see them in the microscope. And of course, they are there. They are sparse. There are not that many in the bottlenose dolphin. But if you look at the pilot whale, very am amazing. These, these, these animals are probably have the f largest number of phonoconomal neurons that we, we, we ever, ever seen. Of course, they are extremely social. You, know, you can f find them in these gigantic pods of I don't know how many hundreds of animals. The beluga whale has them. That's the riso dolphin. You can see one. The riso dolphin has very few of them. And uh, in the minke whale, which is sort of a diminutive uh, balenopterid, we also observe them. Very classic morphology in the minke whale here. They have a rostrocodal distribution. That's a characteristic that we also observe in great apes. This is a map through the cingulate gyrus of the of the humpback whale, rostral is here, caudal is here, and you can see each star here represents one of uh, them on that particular section. We've done stereologic estimates of their total numbers, and in the insula, we found about that in the humpback whale and in the anterior cingulate cortex, values that are not unlike what we find in great apes. So they are more sparse, in fact, because these are much larger brains. So... We know that cetaceans diverge from primates a very long time ago. They possess a set of cognitive attributes that are strikingly convergent with those of many primates. Um, but they have evolved in strange things as, uh, as well because they are in a completely different ecological milieu. Um, so the cetacean brains offer really a critical opportunity for us to, to address questions about how complex behavior can be based on, on, on different anatomical and neurobiological ev evolutionary outcomes. Um, so what we found is that in spite of, of, of uh, in addition to, 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 to the, the variety of, of, of cortical variation that we see in, uh, in cetacean brains, um, we, 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 we can find uh, differences in organization among species for specific cortical regions. So that's one thing that was not known before, and that's something that is similar to what we have in primate. So differences in primary sensory, motor, association cortex uh, across cetacean species likely reflect taxon-specific functional specialization, and um, many cetaceans, like, like bottlenose dolphin or pilot whale, sperm whale, and so on, exhibit self-awareness as well as coalition formation, cooperation, cultural transmission possibly, and also tool use possibly, uh, based on a few reports. So this is similar. This is, again, convergent with what we, what we have found uh, in, uh, in great apes. And uh, that goes well with the fact that we find these, uh, these uh, neuronal specialization in homologous part of the, of the neocortex. So in terms of cognition in great apes and cetacean, we are still looking for a role in phonoconomal neurons. What we know is that they are found in hominids and larger cetaceans, but that is about to change. They are giant layer five fusiform cells found only in certain regions of the brain. We know they are projection neurons. They have thick dendrites, very rare spines, so it's a very particular cell type. If you try to model that, it does not behave at all like a pyramidal neuron. And their projection zones are likely to be subcortical in hypothalamus, septum, periaductal gray region that are involved with autonomic control. Um, and um, they have 
a certain neurochemical profile. We see they contain neurofilament protein, but they are also very rich in the dopamine D3 receptors, the arginine vasopressin 1A uh, type of receptors, and the serotonin 2B type of receptors. So they, they probably have a very specific uh, uh, profile as well. We are pursuing these studies in, uh, in, with um, uh, laser capture uh, microscopy and my, uh, microarray with uh, John Allman. Um, interestingly, they have a protracted development in humans, but not in great apes. But that's that's okay because you know chimpanzees tend to be very pedomorphic. They they are present at birth in uh, in, in apes, but not in humans. We don't know in whales. Um, they are little affected in AD, but they are very vulnerable and abnormal in, in many other uh, neuronal pathologies, uh, brain pathologies that have um, that affect social behaviors. So they may have a role in social awareness, possibly in nonverbal uh, vocalization, um, certainly a role in autonomic motor and sensory inter integration, and the question remains as to whether they are present only in hominid and, uh, and, and, and large whales or whether they are also present in other species. So for the future, the next step for us is to continue all these investigations bridging neuronal pathology in human and evolution in the brain to try really to find out what makes the human brain unique. Uh, so comparative and quantitative cytoarchitecture, the definition of prefrontal cortex in cetaceans and other species, um, studying the neuron glia indexed and the brain development uh, of these uh, various uh, parameters, quantification of phonekonomo neurons, Brain imaging, so that's something we started with John Allman again at Caltech, that's a 9.4 Tesla magnet uh, diffusion tensor imaging um, of a gorilla brain. And you can see we can do a very exquisite tractography of the myelinated fiber pathways, and we can compare this uh, uh, among species to see how this brain differs and compare with humans. And that has a lot of importance for disorders uh, that involve the myelin, like, uh, like schizophrenia, as it has been uh, recently demonstrated. And uh, we start to do that in the whale. So this is the very first example of uh, tractography in the postmortem uh, in a postmortem brain uh, specimen of uh, balenopterid or of a cetacean in general, I think. Uh, you can see this, the motor pathway here, the pontocerebellar fibers, very, very nice. I owe this, uh, this image to a student at Mount Sinai, David Carpenter. Um, and we'll continue by studying other species. So this, this is a picture I, we, we took this morning. Yeah? And um, you may want to guess the species. It's not a whale, uh, but it's a close relative of the whale. You have two magnificent spindle cells here, and that's the hippopotamus. So it was present in the common ancestor, which means that the old archaeocytes probably advanced when they were going back from land to sea, and that sets back the date a little bit. The next step will be to look in other artiodactyls. The interesting things, I did a very rapid survey of it. I looked at the distribution of, of, of the veins in the, of the von Economo neurons in, in, in the hippopotamus to see whether they were only localized in the insular cortex and the, in the cingulate cortex. And it's not the case. They seem to be diffuse in the cortex and not really clustering except in a few spots. So it may be that as these species evolved, 
um, from their from their uh, common ancestor. Uh, the, the projection formed by the van, by the von Economen neurons got refined and got clustered really to spots where it mattered to have these particular cells. Uh, and that would be the anterior cingulate and, uh, the, the frontoinsular cortex. Interestingly, you remember the clustering of cells in layer two. That's also present in the hippopotamus here, very, very prominent actually here. It's the region, I think it's the primary sensory cortex. And then there is that species here. So yet another example of convergent uh, evolution. This is uh, a section through the brain of an African elephant. Here is the entire cingulate cortex. Each little dot is a phonecono neuron. You can see some example here, very beautiful cells. So they are down here. So, and that evolves even later. So that's, that's, that's really remarkable that in, in, in these species who we know uh, are capable of self-awareness, uh, have a social structure, are able to, to communicate among conspecific, you find that, that, that similar neuronal signature. And I think I'm going to leave you there. I just need to, to really thank a great many people who over the, the past 20 years have helped and contributed to all of these studies. And uh, just to present the actual artists, this is the lab. Thank you very much. Find out about all events taking place at the American Museum of Natural History and elsewhere in New York at our website, scienceandthecity.org.